Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. As we continue our study through the book of Joshua, we'll be looking at chapter 11 and chapter 12 this morning, both of these chapters in their entirety. If you have been with us through our study of Joshua or have been reading the book of Joshua, you will come to chapter 11 and you will read a familiar story. As a matter of fact, if you come to chapter 11, you might get the feeling that you've turned on the television hoping for a new episode and instead you've got a rerun that you've seen four, five, six, seven times before. And because of that, there is a tendency to come to a chapter like this and say, well, I, I know this. I, I've, I've heard this before. I've, I've seen this story. This is familiar to all of us that have been journeying through Joshua together. You do know the story. It's Joshua courageously leading his people into the promised land. It is the kings hearing that God is on the move and knowing all the miraculous things that have happened and because of that deciding that they would stand against the Lord and his anointed. They form an alliance knowing that just by themselves they couldn't defeat the people of God but certainly if they formed an alliance of kings they could stand against him and they do. And as all of these kings and all of these nations come and decide to join their forces to stand against the Lord and his anointed, there is a battle. And as it has happened so many times before in the book of Joshua, at the end of it, Joshua and the people of God, in unlikely circumstances, wins. It does feel like the same old story. The truth is that Joshua 11 and 12 is not the same old story because there are no same old stories in the word of God. Every single word of God is there for our encouragement. It is there for our instruction. As we're told multiple times that the Old Testament is there for our encouragement and our instruction. There is something new and fresh here that the Lord needs for us to hear. And certainly, like all of the battles in the book of Joshua, it is a reminder to us of the life of walking with Jesus. That is the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua reminds us, as the people who have already been saved, the book of Exodus this is what it means to walk with Jesus. It is a reminder that the life of walking with Jesus is a life of constant battles that we must fight by faith. It is a reminder of Ephesians chapter 6 that we do stand against an enemy in the strength of the Lord and we wage war against the forces of darkness every day of our lives. Joshua 11 and 12 are different because in chapter 11 you have the final battle. It is the list of battles to end the battles. It is the end of the warfare and the entrance after chapter 12 into the land. And that's why it ends in chapter 11 by saying this, and the land had rest from war. This is certainly pointing us to a day in which after all of the struggle with sin and after all of the struggle to live a holy and a pure life in the midst of the war and the flesh and the devil and the world around us, that there is coming a day in which we will rest from this warfare. There will be a day in which we'll enter into our final rest. And so it is, this is pointing us to that. But until that time, we need hope and courage to persevere, amen? That we are not to that moment yet. 
And the truths in these chapters, in chapter 11 and 12, as it shows that the people of God are being faithful all the way to the end, fighting every battle until the battle is over. We begin to realize that there are some truths here that point us not just to the reality of the battle, listen, but they point us to the assurance of victory. The assurance that after all is said and done, God's people will be victorious. Let's look at it together. Now, chapter 11, in the first few verses, shows us five specific nations who have come to rally together against the Lord. You see it in verse 3, the Canaanites in the east and the west. And then it says the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Hivites. And it tells us in verse 4 that they came out with all of their troops. Listen to this picture. A great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merim to fight against Israel. Once again, humanly speaking, Israel is outnumbered and they are outmatched. Let us remember the people of Israel are a group of desert nomads who have been wandering for generations who are coming to face a battle against city-states with fortresses and armies well-equipped with horses and chariots and all of the resources of war. And they have confidence because of their horses and chariots, but the Lord's people have confidence because of the Lord himself who has promised he would fight for them. So you don't look at these battles in human terms. We don't look at any of our battles in human terms. But the battle that is about to happen here, listen to me, is a battle that had to happen at some point. This was a battle that had to happen because God said 400 years ago, this exact battle was going to happen. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord told Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. You're going to go, and you're not going to know where you're going, but I'm going to give you a land. He didn't give him any specifics. He just went not knowing where he was going. But in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord comes and affirms to Abraham, let me tell you about the land that you're going to receive. And he mentions the same nations that are right here. He says it's the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Hivites. And then all throughout the book of Exodus, and even into the book of Deuteronomy, these five nations are mentioned over and over again. It's in Exodus 3, and Exodus 13, and Exodus 23, and 33, and 34, and Deuteronomy 7, and Deuteronomy 20. These nations keep coming back. Because the Lord said, I want to tell you the land that I'm going to give you. It's the land inhabited by these five nations. And in order for you to take possession of that land, there will someday be a battle that's going to take place in order for you to move in there and move them out. For 400 years, God has been promising that these five nations had to go in order for his people to get into the land that God had promised them. And even in Joshua chapter 1 verse 4, when the Lord tells Joshua, you're going to go and take the land, do you recognize how he puts all the borders around it? It's the land that starts here and ends here and goes here and goes here. God has always known exactly the land he was going to give his people. He knew the people that would be taken out of the land in order for his people to take the land. God has always had a plan. And when you look at verse 3, which is a verse, honestly, we would just tend to gloss over where it says that the Amorites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, the hill country, and the Hivites, 
That's a reminder of the fact that God has always had a plan, that God made a promise, and God will fulfill his promise and accomplish every plan he has ever established. And this battle is a battle determined 400 years ago that at some point was going to have to take place, and here it is right now at this moment, all these years later, taking place. And look at what it says in verse 6. After affirming to us that the, the numbers that have come around them is like the sand that is on the seashore, a great horde of soldiers with very many horses and chariots, the Lord says this to Joshua. Don't be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. And you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. He assures them of the victory in verse 6. Not only does he assure them of the victory, he assures them of the time of the victory and the way of the victory. Tomorrow at this time, you're going to win. And you're going to hamstring the horses. And this is exactly how all this is going to work out. Do you know this is the ninth time in the book of Joshua the Lord has told the people they were going to win before they even fought? It's so much so that we kind of come to this and say, well, here he is again, just saying, hey, don't fear, you're going to win this battle. But do you realize the significance of this? Every single battle the people of God fight, he knows who's going to win before they fight it. And he already established this is how you're going to win, this is when you're going to win, and you will, in fact, be victorious. Now you may say, well, sure, that's true, because God knows the future. God's omniscient. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Now listen, that is true. God is omniscient. He knows everything that is going to happen. He has perfect knowledge of the past, the present, and perfect knowledge of the future. But the point of Joshua 11 is not about God's omniscience. The point of Joshua 11 is not to affirm in us that God knows everything. The point of Joshua 11 is to affirm in us that God determines everything. It's one thing to say, yes, the Lord knows that's going to happen. It's another thing that said the Lord determines that this is going to happen. And the reason you know that is because the one verse that stands out more than any verse in the entire chapter in which everything is centered on, and it's Joshua 11, verse 20. Look at it with me. If you're there, say amen. After it said in verse 18 that Joshua made war a long time with the kings and there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, and they took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. You say, well, what's the Lord's doing? All of it is the Lord's doing. It was the Lord's doing that their heart be hardened, that they stand rebellious against the Lord and his people. It is the Lord's doing that this battle take place. It is the Lord's doing that his people will be victorious in this battle. And this shouldn't surprise us. Because we've already seen this in Exodus chapter 4 all the way through 14 when the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart in order that God might display the ultimate amount of glory and power by continuing to prove to the people that there is no possible way that they were saved out of Egypt by their own doing. There is no way they were saved by their own wisdom. There is no way they were saved by their own power. So time and time again, you see the power of Pharaoh rising up to make sure the people understand that humanly they could never be saved 
until the moment in which God dramatically saves them by hardening Pharaoh's heart and displaying his glory and power over Pharaoh and all the nations. What God is doing is in order to fulfill his promise and in order to display his glory, he has hardened Pharaoh's heart. He is hardening the hearts of these nations so that they would stand against the Lord and the Lord would win. Now listen, the the nations aren't guiltless. 400 years before this, the people knew that the people of God were going to come. All throughout Joshua, you have people who know that the Lord is coming and have an opportunity to respond. And we even have Rahab and the Gibeonites who do respond to the Lord when they know he's coming. But these people continue to harden their hearts. And at this moment, it says that the reason this is happening is because this is the Lord's doing. Now, what we call this is God's sovereignty. It reminds us that God is the creator of the universe, he is the king of the universe, and he is the absolute ruler over all things. He does not just oversee things, he does not just know things, he rules over and determines all things. And everything in Joshua 11 is trying to affirm in us this one truth, and that is that God will sovereignly accomplish all of his purposes. God will sovereignly accomplish all of his purposes. Now this has to be true. We we, we have to trust and believe in a sovereign God. It is affirmed all the way throughout Scripture, and the truth is, for most of us as believers, there is few things that we hold on to and find more comfort in than the sovereignty of God. But you do know there are many who hate the idea of a sovereign God. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this. He says, There is no attribute of God more comforting to his children than the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe troubles, They believe that sovereignty has brought their affliction, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children of God ought more earnestly to contend than the dominion of their master over all creation. The kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, There is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football as the great stupendous but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to be in his almonry to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. For God on his throne is not the God they love. They love him anywhere better than they love him when he sits with his scepter in his hand and a crown upon his head. There is something about this doctrine that makes those who do not understand it or to know it to recoil. But let me tell you something. Without God on his throne as believers, we have no confidence and no courage and no hope in this life or in the life to come. We have nothing without this doctrine. We love Romans 8, 28. God is working all things together for good. 
those who he loves and he is called according to his purpose. We love that and we should love it and we should hold closely to it. But do you realize Romans 8.28 is not possible without Ephesians 1.11, that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8.28 is not possible without Psalm 115.3, the Lord sits in heaven and he does what he pleases. There is no confidence that God is gonna work out everything in my life unless it is rooted in the confidence that God is sovereign over all. We must not only affirm this, we must love this. This is our great comfort and the source of incredible courage that we can be assured that God is sovereign over all things and all things are under his loving control. God will sovereignly accomplish his purposes. In response to that, you might say, well, what what does that mean for us and for our action? Doesn't this lead us to passivity? I mean, if God is determining these things and overseeing these things, then, then what is our role? Well, I think it's an interesting part of verse six and seven. Look at it. Verse six says, do not be afraid, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel, and you shall hamstring their horse, horses and burn their chariots with fire. So how does Joshua respond to that? I mean, how does Joshua respond when the Lord says, tomorrow you're gonna win this battle? Well, look at his response in verse seven. So Joshua So, meaning in response to this truth, Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merah and fell upon them. And here's what I love in verse eight. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. Let me me sum up Joshua in a nutshell. God is sovereignly accomplishing his purposes. The people are fighting valiantly and God gets all the glory. That's it. That's life. That's life. God's saying, I have things I want to accomplish. I'm going to accomplish it through your valiant effort, and I'm the one that's going to get the glory, because even with your greatest effort, you could never have accomplished anything without the power of God with you and resting on you. But he runs into the battle. And the rest of chapter 11 from verse 10 all the way in says things like this. Joshua turned back at the time and captured Hazor and struck its kings. Verse 11, they struck them with the sword, all who were in it. They captured them and struck them and devoted them to destruction. Verse 16, Joshua took all of that land. Verse 18, Joshua made war for a long time with all of those kings. Listen, you get a picture of Joshua and all of the people of God, courageous, confident, moving in action, because the sovereignty of God did not hinder their action, it empowered their action. Isn't this Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's Jesus declaring he is the ruler, the king over all things. He is seated on his throne, meaning he's not pacing, he's not anxious, he's not worried, he's got this, okay? We're the ones pacing, anxious, and worried. He's seated on his throne knowing he's got the beginning from the end and already declared the victory. But the reason he establishes his sovereign rule over all things first is because once we know that Jesus is there, And once we know that he is with us and that he is for us, it causes us to go to the hardest places in all of the earth and declare the gospel of Jesus because we know the one who has sent us and the one who has promised to be with us. This is Psalm 60, verse 12. With God we shall do valiantly because he defeats our foes. We're valiant because God is defeating our foes. So how do, you, how do you reconcile this? How do you reconcile God's sovereignty and, and our responsibility? 
The answer is, we don't. We don't. If you'll allow me to quote Spurgeon one more time, he says this, I never have to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together. The point is this. Is God going to sovereignly accomplish his purposes? Yes. But the second truth is this. God will sovereignly accomplish his purposes through our active obedience. I have no idea how that works. All I know is it happens in every episode in the book of Joshua You will win, you will be victorious, you will take the land. You walk then in the confidence in God's sovereignty in active obedience. And that is the means by which God will accomplish his purposes. Listen to me. I absolutely believe that in God's providence, the reason he brought us to the book of Joshua at this moment, having no idea when I decided to preach the book of Joshua, where we would be and what God would be doing in our lives, I'm absolutely confident this is the main thing God wants us to get. He wants us to say to us through the way in which we are giving, through what God did, through our offering, what he's doing through our budget, what he's doing through the growth of our church, he wants to keep saying to us, listen, I've got good things for you. I've got victories for you. I've got things I want you to accomplish. I've got places I want you to go. So he keeps affirming us this confidence in him so that instead of being passive, we might engage more faithfully than ever in the work of the Lord. That's what he wants to say to us right now. Do you want to get in on what God is doing? Do you want to see and be a part of God accomplishing the great things he has in your life and in the life of Prince Avenue Baptist Church? Then get to work. That's what he's saying to engage in act of courageous obedience rooted and grounded in the confidence that God is sovereign over all things. That's where we are as a church. God will sovereignly accomplish his purposes and he will do so through our active obedience. Listen to this. I have to give you one more truth this morning. From Joshua chapter 12. That to me is the most encouraging, empowering of all. You see, chapter 11 ends quite climactically. And the land had rest from war. It's done. And by, by the way, chapter 11 accounts for years of warfare. Because it says in 18, Joshua made war for a long time with those kings. There was this one massive battle and then tons of other battles. And then you get to the end and finally... There was rest from war. And now they're about to go divide up the promised land and give the inheritance. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. But it just kind of ends with rest from war. And then you turn to chapter 12, and it's the oddest chapter in which all it is is a list of every king and every nation that had been defeated. It seems completely out of place and completely unnecessary. It's just a summary of everyone defeated. It's divided into two sections. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. Meaning this, before they crossed the Jordan, there were two nations that Moses defeated, and that's mentioned here by name. Then look at verse 7. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan. So here's a list of all those that Joshua defeated. So two that uh, Moses defeated before crossing, a bunch of others that Joshua defeated 
And all of a sudden, you just have this chapter, which is nothing more of a detailed list of every single nation and king that stood before the people of God and every nation and king that was defeated. There's one thing that stands out. You gotta, you gotta stay with me. There's one thing that stands out when you read this. And it's that it's not just the nations that are mentioned. It's the kings that are mentioned. Over and over. I mean, look what it says. These are the kings of the land, verse 1. Verse 7, these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people. All the emphasis when you read chapter 12 is this king, this king, this king, this king, this king. And look at the very last verse of chapter 12. The king of Terzah, one, O-N-E. It's just kind of ending off there at the end of 24. And then it says this. Here's how it ends. In all, 31 kings. 31 kings. It's funny, I tried to count all of the kings in chapter 12 before I read verse 24 and got to 24 and thought, why did I try to count the kings? It's really hard to count all the kings that are destroyed in chapter 12. There is 31 kings destroyed. There's no more war. The land is at rest. It simply ends with a specific list of everyone who stood against the Lord and failed. Let me tell you why. Turn to Psalm 2. If you're with me, say amen. Because this is about to get really good. See, why in the world do we have a list, an entire chapter dedicated to the specific names of kings who have been defeated? Listen to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? The nations are raging, the peoples are plotting, the kings of the earth are setting themselves against the rulers. Listen, they're taking counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, and the anointed of the book of Joshua is Joshua. He was the anointed king and leader. This is the whole book of Joshua, 1 through 11, the nations gathering, they're plotting, they're rising up against the Lord and his anointed. And here's what they're saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't, want, we don't want the Lord over us, so let's fight against him. Verse four is the Lord's response. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. It is this picture of this massive cosmic universal battle for sovereignty. All the nations want to be sovereign. All the nations want to be independent. None of the nations want the Lord over them. So what do they do? They gather their forces. They rage against the Lord. They come against him time and time again. And the reason the Lord laughs is because of what it says in verse 6. Because the Lord says this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The reason the Lord laughs as he watches all of the nations gather against him is because the Lord has already established his king on Zion. It is pointing us to Jesus Christ. This is a prophetic picture of pointing us to Jesus, who is the Lord's king, who has already been established as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the sovereign ruler over all things. Then it says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. (laughs) Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
kiss the son, speaking of Jesus, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And you say, well, that's neat, Pastor Josh, but what does that have to do with Joshua 12? Listen to me. Joshua 12 is just a picture of, of Psalm 2. It's the kings taking counsel together, standing in rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed, joining forces and pulling all of their resources together to destroy the Lord and to break his bonds from them. But listen to me. The reason Joshua chapter 12 List every single king by name and takes an entire chapter to do so is because Joshua chapter 12 wants to tell us this. Listen, when all is said and done and the battle for supremacy is over, there will only be one king left standing and his name is Jesus Christ. One king standing. 31 kings in all, they all rose up, they all tried to fight the Lord, every one of them is defeated, simply to remind us that Jesus alone will be the last king standing. And there's only one thing that matters, and that's if you're on his side. That's it, that's it. This king, this king, this king, 31 kings in all. One king standing. Jesus Christ. Now, according to Psalm 2, there are two ways to respond to this king. The first is rebellion. Now listen, rebellion can come in many forms. One of the ways of rebellion can be shaking your fist in the hand of God and say, you have not been good to me. I hate you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. There is no way I will ever submit to your lordship. That's rebellion. You know what rebellion also is? Rebellion is saying, Lord, I want you to get me to heaven, but I don't want you to do anything to do with earth. I've taken you as my savior, but I don't want you to be my Lord. Rebellion is saying, Lord, you can have this part of my life, but don't touch this part of my life. Rebellion is anything in your heart which refuses to bow down to the authority of Jesus Christ over your life. Because if there is any area of our life in which Jesus is not Lord, that is an area of rebellion. So let's don't simply think of rebellion as shaking our fist in the hand of God or gathering together with the kings to stand against him. No, it could simply be an area of rebellion in our hearts in which you are refusing to bow down to the lordship of Jesus Christ. But the other response is that of refuge. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I keep meditating on this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, meaning taking refuge in him is coming under his authority, submitting every area of your life to him, saying, Lord, I'm not just coming to take you as my Savior. I want you as my Lord. I surrender everything I have to you, all of my present, all of my future, all of my possessions, everything to your Lordship. You're the boss. I release control of everything. I give myself completely to you. And what Psalm 2 says is happy is the one who lives that way. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in the Lord. What the enemy wants to tell you is that submitting to the lordship of Christ is when you lose all of your freedom. What the Lord wants to tell you is that's when you get your freedom. That there is no happiness, there is no joy, there is no goodness, there is no life outside of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And when you begin to run to the Lord as your refuge, surrendering everything to his lordship, not only is that the entrance into life as it was meant to be, that is the means by which you find the courage to be faithful until the very end. 
And I believe without question this morning, God is calling some of you into a new area of submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That there is an area of your life in which you will not give the Lord control. You've given him this, but you haven't given him that. There are some of you who want Jesus to be your Savior, but you're terrified of having him as your Lord. Listen, you can't take him as Savior and not as Lord. He's either Savior and Lord, or he's not Savior or Lord. This is not simply a matter of getting you to heaven. This is a matter of coming under the authority of Jesus Christ, believing it is the blessed life, and choosing by faith to trust and follow him. And this morning, God is giving you this picture of Jesus Christ, the last king standing, to make sure you're in a right relationship with him. And I'm begging you this morning on Christ's behalf. I'm begging you. If there is any area of your life in which you're afraid to surrender to the Lord, You must trust his goodness and his kindness, knowing that perfect love casts out fear. There is nothing to be afraid of unless you're outside of submission to him. If there's an area of your life in which you're not submitting to his lordship, I'm gonna ask you this morning to get on your knees before God, to get on your knees before God and give it to him. As a sign of his authority over your life, you get on your knees declaring, Lord, this is about you. This is not about me. This is a sign of submission. And in submission, you say, Lord, here it is. I'm I'm doing this. I'm, I'm submitting my life to your lordship. I want you to be Lord. I've been doing this long enough. This is yours now. I give everything I have, all that I have to you. You do with it what you want. Believing that blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.